You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll go deeper into our conversation about youth mental health with a psychologist and a high school student. For me and most of my, my closest friends, the friends that I talk to the most, we've all like just kind of like just depression wise just gotten a lot worse. Just it makes you kind of feel like there's just no end. Like you just because we don't know when COVID will be over. We don't know when quarantine will be over. So if you just kind of stay in bed all day because you don't have to go anywhere, it kind of just your mental health just kind of drops naturally just because you're just not doing anything. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org. Everything's online these days, still, and that's had serious mental health consequences, particularly for young people who would otherwise be in school. But the pandemic means that the therapy and the sense of community that people might seek out to help with depression, anxiety, or isolation also has to take place online. Today, we'll hear from a clinical psychologist and a young person who started therapy during the pandemic about how they're building personal and close connections through a screen. Hi, my name is Sadie Crawford. Um, I'm a sophomore at Lincoln High School. Hi, I'm Dr. Martha Merchant, and I am the lead consultant for a program called HEARTS, Healthy Environments and Response to Trauma in Schools, and I'm here in San Francisco also. So I'd like to start by asking both of you how you've seen the pandemic having affected young people's mental health in general. What are you hearing about how people are feeling and about how they're coping during the pandemic? Um, I mean, for me, just because like I'm I'm a sophomore in high school, so like I mainly only talk to high schoolers. I've just kind of seen everyone kind of since they're isolated, you just kind of it's not even that you see them. It's that you don't see them. You see that like you watch as they kind of just wither away or they kind of self isolate more than just regular like isolation where you have to stay at home and quarantine like some people kind of. For a few weeks, they like completely drop off all social media, or like people just they can't because they can't communicate and they're not placed in schools and stuff where it's easier to have social interaction. For me, I've, the biggest thing is just people have just kind of stopped talking to other people and like self isolation that type mm-hmm. of thing. And how does that affect them? Like your friends, if you feel comfortable sharing how it affects you, I'd be curious about that too. Yeah, I mean, for me and most of my my closest friends, the friends that I talk to the most, we've all like just kind of like just depression wise just gotten a lot worse. Just it makes you kind of feel like there's just no end. Like you just because we don't know when COVID will be over. We don't know when quarantine will be over. So if you just kind of stay in bed all day because you don't have to go anywhere, it kind of just your mental health just kind of drops naturally just because you're just not doing anything nothing's ever being stimulated you don't move you don't exercise and then just nothing is normal so then you're like anxious and everything's just kind of gone a lot worse really quickly in terms of like quarantine yeah martha what have you seen i definitely see similar things i um, work actually more with littler kids 
And um, what I see is I do see things like sadness and depression and um, a lot of worries, a lot of anxieties with kids. I think we have the pandemic and the shelter in place, but we also have at the same time the uh, social justice uprising that we see. And so for some people, this means that they haven't seen up close and personal the racism and the things that we're we're experiencing in our society. So for some kids, that may feel like a new trauma, a new um, uh, thing that's going on. And then for kids who have known that this has been going on for a long time, it may just feel more kind of in their face than it was mm. before. And so I definitely see folks isolating, just like Sadie said. And I also see for younger kids, I see them having a really strange experience of the world. And if you're not very old, you don't remember maybe all the different times you had. And so it starts to feel like this is the world. And yeah. this world is scary. There's people dying. And if the only view of the world that you have is through your little device, your phone or your television, and the news is happy to tell us all about the scariest stuff. And so I do see anxiety and, um, and depression on the rise, uh, even with younger kids, too. Yeah. yeah, well, we certainly are good at bringing the bad news. <laughs> in <media. laughs> um, but I'm glad you brought up the uprisings over last summer, because I think any discussion of how students are doing right now would frankly be incomplete without mentioning the existing racial and income inequities in the education and in, in mental health and health systems in general. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if both of you could talk about how you're seeing those inequities interact with the additional stressors of the pandemic. We kind of, since, like, SFUSD as, like, a school district, they want to, like, you know, react or have some sort of, like, message or just kind of openly talk about all of these, like, movements that have been going on recently or, like, kind of they've gotten bigger recently. And so for us, like, the biggest thing is just our school district has been kind of handling everything in the wrong way. They've like they've been changing that they want to change the name. So instead of like dealing with the racism and homophobia of like everyday life at schools, they've been dealing with like more publicity things and like trying to change the school names, which just they've been they want to spend money and do the whole thing where it's like, oh, we're like Washington was racist. Lincoln was racist. And instead of like dealing with literal day-to-day -day racism with that happens literally every day in the classrooms and so i've just been seeing that a lot of people have been handling like a lot of people in power like not really students the people in power have been handling this like badly the institutions and stuff do you see a link there between that and how people's mental health has been faring during the pandemic I mean, for pers like personally, not really, but I can assume that yes, because people, especially the people who have to deal with the racism that happens to them every day, and instead of getting help from the school and the adults, no, no one's actually helping them. So mm -hmm. I'm assuming that would be awful. Mm -hmm. I do think that school districts have really tried to figure out what it is they need to do about all the things. And I, I don't work only in San Francisco. I work in other districts too around the Bay Area. And I have seen, you know, kind of what Sadie's talking about where kids are feeling like nobody's paying attention to what's happening right now and from the, mm -hmm. in the day-to-day -day life of, of what that means. But also, you know, there's the systemic piece 
where once everything went to virtual learning, if you live in a neighborhood where they don't have access to good internet, if you live in a house where there isn't good internet because there's not enough money to have to pay for high speed internet, if you can't afford good equipment, you know, the districts, lots of districts have given out things, iPads and Chromebooks. They aren't necessarily the most, the highest tech objects that could have been given out because they're trying to give out a lot of them. Um, and um, so for some families, that's been, you know, that systemic inequity has showed up because they can't just participate in the most basic of ways. And then I think that has kids worried about what, what it means that they can't show up to school or like teachers insisting that kids be on camera is a difficult thing. If you live in a house where there's multiple families or if you are at a hub or if you're living, maybe you're not living in a house. And so showing up on camera may feel really scary and worrisome. And so I mm-hmm. do think that that has an impact on mental health of students and frankly, also on teachers. I think everybody that I've talked to is really doing their best to figure this out. And I think that teachers are also stressed out by the way things have gone. Teachers also experience racism and sexism and homophobia and those things. And I think all of those things are like being highlighted because of the pandemic and the social uprising and all that. Can you, would this be a good point in time to ask you to talk a little bit more about the Healthy Environments and Response to Trauma in Schools program, especially how that's adapted to the pandemic? Sure. So um, the HEARTS program works with the school district to create more trauma-informed schools. And so the good thing going into this pandemic is that HEARTS has a long-standing relationship with SFUSD. So we have been working with um, the district for a long time. And so we actually started a new project in May with five schools that we hadn't worked with before directly. And so I actually haven't met some of those folks in person But because we already had a pretty good relationship and several of the social workers are people that I've worked with before um, in other capacities in the district, we were able to, I think, pivot uh, relatively quickly to going to online trainings and consultations. And then the other piece of hearts is that mental health interns in the schools are providing direct services. So I'm not providing direct services, but um, folks connected to us through the district are providing those services, which they are doing, again, virtually. It's been difficult. I think it's been difficult. It's difficult to connect with families. It's difficult to keep kids engaged. And I think that we've still been able to do some work. And some of the work that we've done also has been around this anti-racist pedagogy and and what are schools doing directly to help students um, to decrease the stressors that uh, affect them and also the teachers and staff members in the schools. Mm -hmm. You said you work primarily with younger kids how <laughs> at a distance i have such a hard time imagining how you would engage with a a young child virtually yes well so um that is not through hearts that's through my private practice i have mm-hmm. clients who are kids um but also hearts at this time is only in k through 5 and a couple of middle school schools you have to get creative i have uh my things set up so that the camera can focus on the toys or um, I have books and things, stories I can read to kind of help them draw them to me at the camera. Again, luckily, I have had relationships with the folks that I work with. And so they already knew me and they already see me as a trustworthy, uh, compassionate person. And so they want to come and talk with me. Mm-hmm. I do think that 
having building those relationships really, really matters. It's one of the things that I talk the most to teachers about when they're working with students. The teachers that I see with the most sort of engagement from their students are the ones who are willing to take a little time to get to know their students. Yeah. Um, Sadie, you're a wellness ambassador. How do you reach people when there's already this problem of not being able to talk to people or people withdrawing from social media, people withdrawing in general? Yeah, it's also been very difficult just because wellness ambassadors as like the club, it was a new program, like even before the pandemic. And Mm. so they've been like, the person in charge, Ian, has kind of been gathering people this year. So most of us are really new to just being a wellness ambassador in general. So we don't like have really like the best, like the closest community because we don't all know each other. We're all different grades. And so we have to come together through Zoom. And then we as a group, we have to go out and find other people that we can help or find like minority groups that need our help and it's been very difficult just because everything is over zoom and it's hard to like quote unquote recruit people for like a club that you create when it's not like you're like hey you want to join this club because you'd have to like text them or you'd have to like find them first before you actually recruit them like you'd have to I don't know, send an email out to the whole school and no one reads school emails <laughs> or like you, you have a teacher talk about it, but no one is listening to the teachers. So it's hard to like get the news out that there is help available for people. And so it's been really difficult just kind of reaching out to other people and having people come to like the club meetings and having people tell us what they think the school needs and that type of thing. Just like reaching out has been really hard. And also I just wanted to like add on to what Martha was saying like I started like therapy during the pandemic Mm -hmm. and so like I had to meet my therapist over Zoom and so Mm -hmm. that has I like know firsthand how like weird it is having like one of the most like quote-unquote like intimate relationships you know like where you have you talk about hard things you talk about the most like deep things that you don't want to talk to about with anyone else and you had to meet that person over zoom it's, mm-hmm. it was it was very it's very weird and it's been like strange like you have to adjust to it and you have to there's no body language cues or anything and with social just situations it's really weird being on zoom just and meeting new people and like trying to talk about like personal things so like connecting that back with like wellness ambassadors we're trying to like help like for example, the LGBTQ community, and they would have to be vulnerable with us over Zoom, which would be, like, hard for them. Like, clubs yeah. are supposed to be, like, communities, but it's hard to form a completely new community over Zoom. So, yeah. Yes. Well, so when... I assume that occasionally you do form these relationships with folks, how do you do it, I guess? I mean, I've already asked that before, but um, wh- when you finally reach somebody, I mean, what what kind of a reaction do you get from them when you say, okay, well, let's let's meet. Uh, let, let's let's see how I can help you. What can you offer um, as a as a wellness ambassador um, and as a peer counselor or a, a peer coach? Sorry, I don't know the correct term. Yeah, um, that's fine. F- at a distance. Like, if I'm being honest, it's just like, the only thing you can really do is like 
offer like your time and like your ear you know like mm. you we have like the GSA like the gay straight alliance and we have weekly meetings for that and so anyone can come like the meetings are completely open like anyone can come whenever and it's like kind of the main focus is just everything is like community building like just kind of fun games that everyone can play together it's just like you just want to make it so that this is a safe space for people and normally you do that just kind of by talking but now we have to do it through like planned activities like playing online games or like they like create powerpoint presentations beforehand and like have like people be like there's like weird random cahoots and like mm. and like there's just all these like activities and then in the um a mental health club there was like a pebble painting thing and where you like painted pebbles and so it's it's really just kind of like community like games and that's kind of like the farthest we can go now because it's hard for people to like be vulnerable when your camera's off and so there isn't a lot right. of like like actually like getting deep down into like anyone's feelings or really anything so it's been it's been difficult doing like what the group was created to do there's been mm -hmm. like you have to modify it martha did you want to add to that i did i mean i think so what you're saying what you're talking about those games and the silly cahoots i think those are the things that we're trying to like you said recreate what would happen in if we were in person with one another, if we were yeah. in a brick and mortar building, what would right. happen? And, you know, like you said, a listening ear, like offering your time and your ear, that that is a huge help, right? The thing that helps us the most get um, regulated, the thing that helps us the most get grounded in our feelings are other people. And right. looking into each other's faces would be helpful. And in the absence of that, like sharing fun games is a way to start to build those connections. Um, and those connections are the things that, frankly, even therapy is built up of those little connections, right? Every one of those little connections helps us to feel a little safer, a little more secure in the world. And so even though you sort of described it as like feeling like it's not very much, um, I think that it probably is a lot for kids who are especially disconnected from other folks that even that those silly cahoots games um, can mean a lot. Mm hmm. I'm speaking with high school sophomore Sadie Crawford and Dr. Martha Merchant, a clinical psychologist and lead consultant for the Healthy Environments and Response to Trauma in Schools program. One thing that I found really instructive in my last conversation about youth mental health is talking about how families and parents can or should respond to signs that a kid is struggling, you know, that their child is struggling or that a sibling mm -hmm. is struggling, especially in families that might not have a lot of resources. Do you have any thoughts about that? Any advice? What can one do? It can be very scary to see somebody going through something like this and, and not really know how to help. Did you want to go, Sadie? Oh, no, you can go. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, just what we've been talking about, I think that a listening ear is kind of the start for that, um, especially with older kids who might be willing to talk. The idea is that we want to try to get the lines of communication open and then keep them open. If your child comes to you with something that is startling or scary for you to hear, then we want to take a little bit of time responding. Sometimes you need to take a deep breath before you say anything. 
if you can't think of something to say, right, because sometimes our kids come to us with things that we're like, whoa, I don't even know how to respond to that. It's totally okay to say that. I don't even know what to say. And then we want to follow that with something like, I'm really glad you told me. I'm glad you let me know. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing it, right? Because what we want is for kids to feel like it's okay for me to express myself here. Because as long as there's that open line of communication, we can help kids get the help that they need even if it isn't with just us, even if that means they need a therapist or they need someone else to talk to. Mm -hmm. Sadie, did you want to add to that? Um, I definitely agree. Like it's just communication is like key. And I just think if it's not that your child like says something to you and it's more of you notice something and it wasn't actually them coming to you, just kind of like reaching out and telling them like, hey, like, I saw that and like if you want to talk about it like I noticed Mm -hmm. that your behavior has changed a little bit or like is there anything going on do you want to talking do you want to talk about it like that type of thing could definitely help someone has to create the like safe space so that someone Mm -hmm. else can talk you know so it's just if you see something and you're concerned don't just kind of let it go because they didn't tell you you know like you just kind of want to let them know that like you're looking out for them and you're here for them. Yeah. One thing I was surprised to learn is that according to the American Psychological Association, a lot of students actually rely on schools for mental health care. Among adolescents who received mental health services between 2012 and 2015, 35% received those services exclusively from school settings. Mm -hmm. And that's from a national survey on drug use and health. Mm -hmm. But with distance learning, you can't walk into a wellness center. How does that change? How do schools being closed change the landscape of what's available and what's easily accessible for students? I feel like for schools where kids have already built some relationships, then then, then we're leaning on those. So if it's a high school and the kid is a 10th grader, then teachers might be able to look out for that student and then refer them to school social workers or counselors. And then it's possible that the child has already met or seen that person and knows them from around the school. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like Sadie was saying, it's really hard if they haven't yet met um, those people or they don't know them yet. But I think it's important that teachers are paying attention and noticing changes in behavior, like Sadie was saying, and then bringing that up um, maybe with a student and saying, Hey, is everything okay? You know, we have people here that you can talk to. I think that um, the other piece of that is how, if they've, get connected up with a therapist or a social worker, the school, um, how that engagement goes. So one of the things that I found very helpful is for, especially for teenagers is to have them to say explicitly, it's okay not to have your camera on. Um, I have a clinician colleague who has a a kiddo that they've been doing therapy with this school year. um, And the whole time the clinician is looking at the the ceiling. So the kiddo has the phone on, but it's pointed to the ceiling. Um, <laughs> the clinician's face is up because the clinician can be on and, and wants to be there to provide. So when the kid does look, there's the clinician. Uh, but um, so having explicitly said that, the child began to come more frequently, more regularly. And so I think that can be another piece is how you're engaging with the student once they do arrive. Yeah. I know a lot of people just for when I was in like last school year when I was in ninth grade I know a lot of people who they saw the school therapist and that was the first time they ever even considered seeing a therapist like 
they just walked because they were having a bad day or something and so they walked into the wellness center and they were like because the wellness center you can like sit in there for 15 minutes if you need a break so a lot of people would walk into the wellness center if they were having a bad day and they would let them sit on the couches or whatever and if you go to the wellness center you're like offered to see the therapist like they'll off they'll be like do would you like to see one of the school therapists and so i think like I know a lot of people and a lot of my friends did see our school therapist and that was the only kind of way to see, to get help because like if they don't have supportive parents or if their parents don't notice anything and they don't want to ask their parents for help, the school therapists were there. And I know that now, even with the fact that they had relationships with them in person, it's still hard and if your mental health is like fast declining and you want to not see your therapist your ser- like the therapist can't just like walk into your classroom and be like yeah. hey what's up like we haven't met in a while or anything so i know a couple people who have just kind of stopped talking to their therapist and then i know a lot of people that could probably use like benefit from meeting the school therapist but they won't go because it's such a like it's a, it feels like a commitment to like set up a Zoom meeting with the therapist mm-hmm. and it feels it it just feels draining and like a lot to set up a Zoom meeting and be like I need help like it just it's not just like oh casually walking into the wellness center to like get water or like do something totally. and so it's a lot harder for people to kind of get help through the school now mm-hmm. I think that's I totally hear you I think that's very true and I think that the opposite is also true sometimes for kids. I have a schools that I'm working in up north and um, their wellness centers, which obviously are not, are closed, um, they are reporting more usage of the wellness center. And so mm-hmm. um, in some ways, so this is up north and in some, the, I feel like in uh, San Francisco Unified School District, there's a culture around wellness centers, but that doesn't exist everywhere. What I've heard from this other school district is that they've had more drop-ins um, like sort of drop-in times that, that are available mm-hmm. for students. They think because the kids don't have to be seen walking into a wellness center. So I think for some mm-hmm. students walking into a wellness center is also stressful and feels like, right, oh no, right. everybody's going to think there's something wrong with me because I'm walking in there. Yeah. Um, especially in places like that this wellness center isn't a place, like you said, Sadie, that you can just drop in and take a break. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that even though I'm, I'm sure it's overall harder, I do think that for some folks it's actually easier to be able to access that service without anyone seeing them do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I see that. I was talking with parents the other day about school reopenings. And one of the parents I was speaking with is actually a therapist also. And she was saying she does not think that the school district is ready, is prepared for the just impact that the pandemic has had on kids' mental health when they return that they're not ready for, you know, the behavioral changes that they're going to see, that teachers are going to encounter and paraprofessionals are going to encounter. Do you get the sense that school districts have some preparation to do before we go back to full reopening? Um, Yeah, (laughs) I think think so, definitely. Just even with the bare minimum of just kind of, just very quickly kind of like briefing teachers and being like, don't like try to keep your expectations like like lower just because like I feel like it's kind of common knowledge that it like people don't always 
pay attention in their classes. You know, you can have the Zoom like halfway across the room with your camera off and you're completely doing something else. And so attention span has it's completely different, you know, and and so I think that's like the barest minimum in terms of teachers need to know that people are not used to sitting in lecture for an hour and a half anymore. Mm -hmm. Like people Mm -hmm. like because our schedule is completely different than year this year than it was like any other year at Lincoln. Like our blocks are so much shorter. Everything is shorter. We used to be in class for a straight hour and a half. And now we're in class for so like technically we're in the class for an hour and a half. But it's like synchronous and asynchronous time. So Mm -hmm. sometimes you're in class for like less than 40 minutes, you know, and it's just you don't if you don't pay attention for like 20 of those minutes then you're literally only listening for 20 minutes so I just think in terms of like attention span and just people being able to keep up is definitely going to be different at least for the beginning Mm -hmm. I've been working in um, some schools across the country where they have long been back where they went back a long long time ago Mm -hmm. Um, I think that when I'm thinking about districts that haven't gone back yet I'm hoping that they're looking at what other school districts have done already and what has been successful. I hope that um, people are not trying to reinvent the wheel. Um, I don't know what's happening in San Francisco Unified School District on that. I And I know that there are plenty of places across the country who have opened up and then closed again and then learned from those mistakes and opened up again. And so I, I hope that people are looking and listening and, and trying to find out what's happening in other places and what's been successful in those other classrooms. The other thing that I think, you know, as I was listening to you talk, Sadie, about those 90-minute blocks, mm-hmm. like, the fact of the matter is that the, the research tells us that the average adult has an attention span of 11 minutes. That's the average adult. <laughs> the average adult. And that is a person who wants to be there. So, think grad school adult. And so, these 90-minute blocks, I hope that when we go back to schools that we have learned something from this experience that we could carry some of that information with us. Like that maybe it's better for kids not to be in a 90 minute lecture series, that maybe it's better to plan for some asynchronous time that, you know, maybe it doesn't mean going off and doing your thing, but maybe it means this much lecture and then this much time where students get to do some work independently. And then maybe back Mm -hmm. to some questions, you know, things like, um, using the jam boards or the, uh, I can't think of the name of the other tools, but like cahoots and and things like that can be used in classrooms. Mm -hmm. Like plenty of children are carrying their phones into class, whether or not they're allowed to. And I hope that we can take some of the lessons learned with us into brick and mortar schools. One of the things that I see teachers use a lot um, in the K through eight school system is having kids do a warm up when they first come into the room. So a warm up being a question like, What's your favorite, what's a favorite scent or sound of yours? What's something that you, right? So, um, so like warm up questions to help get kids mm-hmm. engaged in the learning. That's a perfectly reasonable and good thing to do when we're back in brick and mortar schools. And I hope that we can sort of hold on to some of those things that we've learned that help kids uh, get focused and engaged and feel more part of a community once we do go back. Mm-hmm. Well, we're running out of time here, but I want to give both of you an opportunity to say anything about young people's mental health during the pandemic that I did not specifically ask about that you wanted to add. Uh, I think that one of the things that you mentioned in in your email to me was about destigmatizing conversations about and seeking treatment for mental health and how under circumstances like these, people might feel even more isolated and like there isn't help available. 
And I think that's totally right on. And I think there are very good reasons why folks um, don't want to seek out mental health. There are very concrete reasons why people of color are hesitant to go into systems that have over the years harmed them and continue to harm them. And so I think that what we have to do in those cases is that we have to help folks feel safe. Like Sadie was saying, we have to create that safe space for folks so that they know that um, this is a place where you can reach out for help and that you won't be judged unfairly and that you will receive the best care that we have to offer. And it's a huge undertaking. Um, and I think it's worth making the moves on that. Absolutely. Well, Sadie and Martha, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That was high school sophomore Sadie Crawford and Dr. Martha Merchant, a clinical psychologist and lead consultant for the Healthy Environments and Response to Trauma in Schools program. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org.